Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for High Velocity Radio. Welcome to Coach the Coach, helping business coaches deliver more impact in less time. If you're a business coach and want to help more people make more money and own your backyard, go to mybrxstudio.com. Lee, I cannot think of a better way to invest a Friday afternoon. This is going to be a fantastic segment. Please join me in welcoming to the broadcast, President and Principal Consultant with One Team Inc., Miss Karen Walker. How are you? I am terrific. I am so happy to be here, even though it's a Friday afternoon. So thanks for having me. <laughs> well, Karen, before we get too far into things, can you tell us about One Team Consulting? How are you serving folks? Sure. Uh, so One Team is me. Uh, it used to be my husband uh, and I, so we were the One Team. Uh, and our work is uh, particularly centered on working with CEOs and senior leaders to help create One Team in their organization to, to fuel the growth of the organization. Uh, Bob retired a few years ago, and I am still strong at it. Uh, he's now teaching Tai Chi and actually fishing at this moment. Um, and I am um, still loving the work that I do and uh, doing both um, consulting work within organizations, uh, executive coaching and advising work, uh, and then speaking, and then recently uh, released a book. So now an author as well. Now, um, how can you tell a little bit of, about your backstory? How did you get into this? Were you mm -hmm. always kind of a coach consultant, or did you have like kind of a real job and then uh, <laughs> kind of moved on to this? You know, yeah, I had a client ask me last week, how many hours a week do you actually do this? And I'm like, probably more than you do. <laughs> um, I had a circuitous route here. Um, I'm an engineer by degree, so a little different background than uh, most people in this role. I went to work for a startup very early on in my career, uh, just like the people that were going there. And so I followed and um, I joined before they had shipped any product or made any revenue yet. And it turned out to be Compact Computer. And we were the fastest growing company in American history at that time. We did $111 million in our first year. And by the time I left, actually also been the fastest to a billion at the time. And by the time I left 14 years later, we were at about... 15 billion, and instead of 100 employees, we had about 17,000. And so, fortunately, I was able to grow as part of the senior leadership team there, um, my skills and my organization. And I had an amazing coach um, who was an internal coach who helped me so much because I had not the first clue about really how to lead and manage an organization who who didn't all think the way that I thought. And um, the organ as the organization grew, um, I grew, and uh, I left after, well, you know, it was really a, a giant company by the time I left. Uh, and it was just something I knew that although I enjoyed my job a lot, I didn't want to do it the rest of my life. And at that sort of that part of an organization, it's very difficult to make a lateral move. And so I just stepped away and took a little time to figure out what I wanted to do next. I met my now husband and, as I mentioned, a former partner in my business. Uh, who, as a psychologist, came at this work a little differently than I did. So I went back to Columbia and got the theory behind the practice that I knew of, of managing global teams and working with boards and uh, making things happen in organizations. And uh, he and I worked together for 10 years, and um, now I'm doing it solo. Now, for you, so your career was primarily at the one organization, and then you went into coaching from that? 
Yes. So then you're. Yeah, I worked briefly at a Fortune Fortune hundred company mm-hmm. before I went to Compaq. Yeah. But so your frame of reference is just this hyper fast growth company. Like, is that? So- yes, and that's what I. That's what I thought was normal. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't, I, I didn't know uh, until. I mean, sort of when you're in the soup, you don't realize right. it, right? But um, I mean, I knew that we were garnering a lot of headlines, and and maybe not quite normal, but I didn't know how abnormal it was. Um, and so that's sort of what got me hooked on um, on fast growth and working with high performance teams, because I think once you've had that kind of experience, it's hard to sort of settle for anything else. And uh, my practice is and aimed at um, growth and growth-oriented companies primarily, but not exclusively tech since then. So now when you're working with these companies, are they, you know, they're they're going, hey, Karen, we want some of, just do what you were doing over there at Compaq and just do make some of that appear here? Like, is, is that their expectation? Don't coaches wish they could just make things appear. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, now, the conversation is typically we're growing, uh, we don't know what to do to sustain our growth. So I'm not so much about helping them find a product market fit. I can help them be clear about whether they have one or not. But once you have a good product market fit, what next? What are the internal strategies that you need to support the external strategies? Because what often happens is um, for growth companies, your sales outpace your ability to deliver on the promise that you made to your customers. And that's where we get in trouble. Um, so sales will will do their job and they will sell. And then development is like, well, we can't quite deliver what you sold yet. Or customer success is like, well, we can't really onboard those people the way that you thought, or we can't ship uh, quite what you promised. And so what are the internal strategies to make sure that cross-functionally, particularly at the top of the organization, everybody's in alignment. Everybody um, is working on optimizing for the whole rather than maximizing any one function. And it turns out to be most of the stuff that's in the white spaces in the organization. And that, frankly, is one of the things that Compaq excelled at was we were growing so fast that as long as something got done and done well, we really didn't care who did it. It wasn't like you were stepping on someone else's toes. We all learned from that and, and moved forward and grew organizations. But um, you, have to be, you have to be willing to do what it takes to get things done and to have things done in a real non-defensive atmosphere as long as they're for the good of the whole. Now, why do you think Compaq was so good at that? A um, couple of reasons. One, as I said, we had this amazing product market fit. It was just a, it was a moment of time. It was the right product. Uh, and we had a senior leadership team uh, that was committed to making this um, what we called a big company in the formative stages. So there was enough process put into place, not over-process, but enough so that we could build on that foundation. And we brought in people who were overskilled for the roles they were doing but could carry on as the organization grew and the roles grew. So they... We also had a CEO who was who was amazing at um, Broad Canyon uh, at sort of sniffing out office politics and uh, making sure that if there was any whiff of that, that, uh, that it went away. Um, and so the, the company was really so committed to the, the vision of the organization and working together. Now, when you're working with a, a new client and you come in there, you say typically your clients are already in some growth mode. And they're asking mm-hmm. for help in kind of making sure they don't go off the rails and don't kind of overpromise and underdeliver. How does that yeah. um, kind of the first conversation that takes a lot of mm-hmm. foresight for the executive 
to understand that, hey, yeah. it looks like things are going well, but maybe we ought to bring someone in to make sure that we're able to manage this. Um, so how to, how, talk me uh, through those first conversations. Yeah. what happened? Yeah, so it's typically working with somebody who wants to be a better CEO, right? Um, and it's not that they, that they they aren't the right CEO, but as the organization grows, the CEO needs to grow as well. And often when they're in growth mode, the CEO is pulled in so many different directions that even though they might know the right things to do for the organization, they don't have time to do them all. And so part of what I will do is to, to work one-on-one with the CEO and, and most, if not all, of the executive staff um, in an advising, consulting, coaching role. Um, I will work with them to develop the next generation of leaders because one thing we know is that as the organization grows, the senior leadership team is not going to have time to do all the things they're doing today. They're not going to have time to do all that tomorrow. And so there needs to be another generation of leadership that gets done, that gets developed. And then I ensure that they're they're clear about what they're doing and why, both the senior leadership team, the rest of the organization. They have the right tools, processes, and behaviors to make that happen. Um, and then I have these um, strategies that I outlined in my book that we'll quickly get to work on. The first is making sure that there's no dumbing down going on in the organization. And dumbing down is what I think of as teamwork as usual. It's where we... We show up to work in a team, which we need because we know teams can get things done, particularly cross-functionally. Um, but the team can only work at the level of the lowest performing member. And so it's recognizing that and recognizing that the skills to work on a team are not the same as it is to be a magnificent individual contributor. And oftentimes our teams don't have those skills. And so the, the A players, um, don't want to work on teams because they have to they have to dumb down they're not able to work at their potential and so working with the organization to make sure that that, that doesn't occur um, and then this idea you mentioned something earlier about um, uh, guardrails I, I have this notion I call playing bumper cars because we never really get things done in the direct straight line that we plan and so you need to know where your guardrails are if you're growing faster than you expect What's that point where you need to make a conscious decision if you're going to keep growing faster than expected and, and sort of breaking things internally, or you're going to take a breath, uh, slow things down a bit while you catch up internally. And also on you know the other side of that line, if you're growing slower than expected, making sure you're clear about where that where that place is. That if you bump off, you know, sort of bump off in the way that bumper cars do, that bottom guardrail. Um, how do you get things back on track and back towards uh, the center line where you want to be? How do you make your organization more agile so that people are comfortable with ambiguity, comfortable with the unknown, able to deal with change, which is what growth is all about. So we spend a lot of time in that area. And then lastly, and I think um, this is, is critical, is making sure that the executives are clear about their responsibility for creating time to think. Because there's always more to do in an organization, particularly a growth organization, and we have time to do. There's always somebody else's really urgent thing that needs to be dealt with. But as a senior leader in an organization, I would say one of the things that you are paid the big bucks for is to think. If you don't create time to think, no one else is going to put that on your calendar. And so even though you may know the right things to do, having an accountability system that helps you and your organization pay attention to these kinds of things um, is or the last piece of the strategy that I will put into place for an organization. Now, you mentioned um, uh, earlier about A players, 
And obviously most organizations are trying to get as many A A players as possible. But the reality of the situation might be there might have been a person that was an A player in, you know, back in the day. But now in the new world order, because of the change, (laughs) maybe that A player is now a C player in this new configuration of the organization. Uh Um, So how do you kind of help the leader either, I guess they try to coach up that C player or they have to get rid of the C player. Like how, how do you help them manage that when the person might've been critical at an earlier stage, but maybe as uh, not as critical today? Yeah. Good question. And that's, that's fairly common, right? That, that people don't always grow at the pace that the organization needs for them to grow. Um, or maybe they were, you know, like a really good fit at the last organization where you worked with them, but they're not quite such a good fit at this one. Um, so having some rhythmic review where we look at potential versus performance um, for everyone in the organization, making sure that there's alignment between what the individual needs out of the organization and what the organization needs. Um, I always refer back to Reed Hoffman's great book, The Alliance. Uh, we have this tour of duty concept and right. making sure that the tours of duty are lined up. Um, and then, you know, if the person is a C player in that role, you know, can they be trained quickly to come up um, or is it better for them to be in a different role or exit the organization? And sometimes those are decisions you have to make. And then, again, it's the responsibility of leadership and management to make that happen. Now, what about regarding um, A player in terms of skill, but maybe C player in terms of good for the culture of the company? Yeah. Oh, I see this all the time. Like really technically brilliant people. Um, I have a couple of uh, stories that stand out for me. One is um, I was I was working with a team pretty early in my career, and they were missing a lot of deadlines. And they had this one person on the team who was like technically so brilliant that that you know people didn't want to um, intrude in any way on the on the brilliance. But he was causing them to miss their deadlines uh, because although brilliant, he couldn't work with the team members. And I, again, I see this all the time where, you know, there's sort of a lack of respect for the other members of the team or uh, they don't, they're not willing to share information because they don't think they have to, um, sort of those things that get in the way of good teamwork. So I get this group to, a, to an offsite retreat and we're starting as we always do where I ask them about their hopes and concerns. And, and this one guy was pretty cynical as he was talking about what he hoped to get out of our time together. And so during the break, I noticed that he had a ring on. It was sort of interesting, so I asked him about it, and his answer just blew me away. This ring, it had all kinds of symbols on it, which is what drew me to it, and I had a a, a sort of an image of this community where he went to school, and I won't say it because I don't want to give the school away, but this image um, was sort of pointed at him so he could remember all of the good times that he had there and, and how important it was, but it also had a barnyard animal on it, and the barnyard animal was facing out the other way. And he said, yeah, when we first got our rings, this was facing towards us to remind us, you know, sort of we had to knuckle down and, and grind. But now it's turned the other way so that it will excrete on other people who didn't go to the school. Nice. So here's this guy, this brilliant, technically brilliant guy who's walking around with this mindset that he might have might have had a little to start but got sort of um, – elevated at the school that he went to that that he could um he could think about excreting on all of his teammates uh and as we went into the retreat he finally said i'm not doing this work and i had my moment of well how dare you sort of waste our time 
But then I realized this is what goes on at the workplace. He decides not to work with his teammates. And so we stopped. We did a big debrief about what was going on and how that happened back at the workplace. We um, kind of got through the rest of the retreat with him grudgingly playing along. And not long after that, his manager fired him. She said it just wasn't worth the hassle anymore. And the team stepped up. They did the work that needed to get done technically. Uh, and they started hitting their their deadlines and their commitments. Um, so sometimes no matter how technically brilliant you are, if you're not, not willing to work in a team environment, when your role requires that, um, you know, you might need to go work someplace else. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Coach the Coach, helping business coaches deliver more impact in less time. If you're a business coach and want to help more people make more money and own your backyard, go to mybrxstudio.com. Lee, this is my favorite part of the show. You know why? Because it's about you. That's right. We get to talk about me for a moment. <laughs> um, no doubt, Lee probably has a few more questions specifically regarding your book. I want to ask you about a book, meaning okay. counsel, if any, that you might have for those of us in the marketplace as coaches now that you've experienced this, um, should we have a book? And if so, what should we be trying to, uh, to accomplish with the book? And what are some maybe some do's and don'ts when it comes to this business of sitting down, investing the time, energy, resources to, to craft mm -hmm. a book? And, and, and what should we do and what should we expect from, from, from having one? Yeah, wow. So I didn't expect to have a book. Uh, so I am a really good person to ask this question. Of. <laughs> it was a labor of love with emphasis on the word labor. Um, I am very happy to have written the book. One of the big takeaways and something I didn't expect was it really forced me to codify my own ideas, the writing process did, uh, into what really matters. And that's what this book is sort of a primer for, for CEOs and senior leaders. But it's a, it's a primer because it is the sort of the essence of what I think it takes uh, to make these growth companies succeed in terms of creating their internal strategies. And I couldn't have said that um, uh, as clearly before I wrote the book. So that's the first thing, just the, ho the whole writing process helps you um, clarify your ideas. Um, the second thing is um, there's, the, there's the book and then there's you. And while you can never write a book that's not sort of an essence you, I, I had a client that came back from a conference one. He said, wow, we had this amazing speaker, and, and uh, I want you to read his book, and then we can talk about it and how to apply some of those things here. And I said, terrific. So I get the guy's book, and I read the book, and it's like, uh, okay. Um, so I called my client, and we talked, and I said, so tell me. I've, you know, I've read this book. I'm happy you recommended it. What is it that really resonated with you out of these sort of five main themes from the book? And I reiterated the five things. And he said, well, you know, it, it wasn't really that so much. It was the person. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I realized that, um, you know, the book, um, what the book does, and it, it just broadens your audience in so many ways. And so the book, the book needs to be good, but you don't have to think about writing a book as though it's, it's, it's a book with a capital B. It can be a book with a small b. Um, it needs to be good, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And I think many people who sit down to write a, a business book in particular, let the idea of perfect get in the way of getting a perfectly good book out. I have no doubt that some folks do fall into that trap. 
I have a lot of fa- uh, faults, Lee, but trying to get it perfect, that's not really one of mine, is it? No. <laughs> not one of yours. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for that, counsel. Um, I'm not going to invest the listener's time on another question, but if you would, even after we wrap today's segment, would you hang on the line for a minute? Because I've got a couple more kind of book-related questions I want to I want to ask you. But I'll I turn it back that. over to, to Lee because I know he's got some more questions he wants to ask. Well, uh, thank you for that, Karen. Um, I wanted to start talking about um, the coaching and to give some advice for the coaches uh-huh. that are listening out there. <clears throat> for you, uh, do you do most of your work in person or do you do some of your work virtually or is it are you physically going to the location of your clients or you do it over the phone or Zoom or one of the you yeah. know, video conferences? It's a, it's a, com- it's a combination. Um, I am um, clear that I need to meet with everyone I coach face to face at least once. Uh, and so because I spend a lot of time in the in the air on the plane and in places other than South Florida, um, I'll just if there's somebody in, you know, say Chicago, a place I don't often go to, I'll just zip through Chicago and meet the person because I think that's really important. There's just something you get uh, from being in the same room with someone that you don't get on a video conference. Um, and so we'll start with, you know, making sure I'm, I'm clear about the goals uh, that the person has, their objectives, um, making sure that we set up a rhythmic schedule uh, for when we're going to talk and how that's going to happen. Typically, my clients and I um, speak on, um, on Zoom or some other video conferencing. I'm pretty agnostic about which one that is. Um, and then when I'm in whatever city those clients are in, I will do my best to see them. Um, but we spend, I spend a lot of time on, on uh, video conference. Um, and then I'm also, uh, just by nature of the kind of coaching that I do, I'm always available to my clients, uh, either by um, email or if there's something urgent, uh, certainly uh, via phone call. Now, when you're working, a lot, of, a lot of coaches that we spoke to, especially those that have come from an executive background, um, they, uh-huh. their first clients tend to be people who knew them personally and had worked with them um, you know, in, in a variety of ways. And then their coaching evolved out from that group. Um, do you find it, did that happen with you, number one? And number two, um, do you find that building that network of people in industry helps you get more clients just by being kind of ubiquitous amongst them? Yeah, two good questions. So the first is, um, no, my practice did not start that way, but I don't ever recommend to anyone that they do what I did. So when I left, when I left Compaq, I didn't know what I was going to do next, uh, which actually was surprisingly scary to a lot of people around me um, because I was so busy that I said, I'll never be able to sort out anything except more of the same if I just take the next job. Um, so I, I took some time off to figure it out, and I didn't even take my contact list with me when I left. I mm-hmm. I sort of turned, I just left that world. So I had this consulting job that just fell in my lap, basically, um, when I was living in New York City, and it was in San Francisco. So I moved to Sausalito, uh, lived on a houseboat, because I thought it would be really cool to drive over the Golden Gate Bridge to work every day, which it was. And as a result of that consulting work, I got, I got coaching clients. Uh, and actually, all of my, all of my work, in, uh, coaching and consulting, 80% of that can probably be traced back to one person who was sort of a quiet, unassuming uh, person. But as he went from company to company, he took me with him uh, and introduced me to new organizations. Uh, so then I would meet sort of new senior leadership teams. And as they left, 
and went to other companies. They would take me with them and eventually to a, to a venture capital firm uh, who introduced me to more CEOs. And then, of course, that sort of takes on a life of its own. Uh, but the work, um, the coaching work started with consulting. And then uh, when you're consulting, you're going in there to kind of more hands-on solve a problem and the coaching is more hands-off giving the, the leader the tools to solve their own problems? Is that how you differentiate the two? Yes, exactly. So when I'm doing consulting work, I'm, I'm in the mix uh, and I am uh, very much personally involved in providing solutions uh, within the team framework. Uh, when I'm coaching uh, and advising, uh, that is one-on-one -on -one work. Um, now, typically, um, I work in an organization where I'm doing both coaching and consulting because that gives me more levers that can be pushed, mm -hmm. uh, right? Yeah. Uh, but when I'm when I'm only doing coaching work, um, that is work where um, I I need to understand the organization well enough to know what's going on. So I'll often shadow people or um, sit in on, on uh, executive meetings just to make sure that I'm clear about what's real as opposed to what's perceived by the person I'm coaching. Um, we'll do some assessments um, to help with that, like uh, 360s, for example. Um, but then just get clear on our objectives and uh, try some things, debrief them, see what happened, um, and always march towards the, the big overarching goals that we set for ourselves. Now, um, as part of being a coach, did you go through a certain methodology that resonated with you? Or you, uh, I know in your book you have your own kind of methodology, mm. but did you start with someone else's and kind of modified it as you as you got more experience? Yeah, so I would say a couple of three things really that fed into my the way that I coach. One is being being an executive and sort of understanding from that that side of the table what's going on. Um, I know the things that were helpful and not so helpful to me and, uh, and my peers, uh, just because of conversations and experiences that we had. Secondly, when I went to Columbia and did their ODHRM program, I was exposed to a lot of theory, um, as well as methodology that my, uh, my husband and uh, former partner were using. And then lastly, I am a, I'm a voracious reader. <laughs> I know we're not doing uh, video today, but the, the entire wall behind me is filled with books. And so I, I consume a lot of theory about what works and what doesn't work in coaching. Um, and I'm not hesitant to apply that. In, as you know, you know, you apply new things in areas with small risk. Uh, and so that if they don't work, um, you, haven't, you haven't really hurt yourself. Uh, but I try a lot of new things uh, in situations that seem like they would be applicable. Um, and I learned what worked and didn't work so well with different types of people in different situations over the years. Now, in your coaching, you, you mentioned Columbia. Do you still kind of lean on that as help if you have a question? Uh, so you have like a network of people that are helping you be a better coach, or, or are you kind of like mm. self-taught in this and you're always just kind of learning on your own as an individual? Yeah, I, f I find it really helpful to to have people that I can connect with when I have really thorny problems. So, um, so as I've mentioned, I have a psychologist uh, that I live with. And so if there's someone uh, where I need something sort of really psychologically difficult, um, I, ha I can describe the situation to him and get some coaching and supervision there. Um, that doesn't happen too often, but I have had a couple of clients whose needs were, uh, were greater than I, uh, I think, or any non-psychological uh, coach could help them with. Um, and then um, the second thing is I am a member of a mastermind group um, where there are other, there are six of us this year, 
um, who were in different kinds of consulting work, some coaching, not all. Um, and so I have a, a small cohort of really experienced people that I can also speak with. Now, before we wrap, uh, I'd like to ask every guest um, to share one piece of actionable advice for that new coach out there that is just getting started, uh, something that can maybe speed up their learning curve. Can you share something? Yes, sure. Um, I would say that, can I give you two? Um, the first thing is, is to not be shy about asking for referrals, right? Um, because I thought if I just did good work, people would know about it, and that's not the case. Mm-hmm. You have to get yourself out there. People have to know you're available, and the best way to do that is with a referral from someone that you've worked with almost in any capacity, right? So if you're working with a, a team or an organization uh, and you um, have coached one individual through that process, get that person to give you referrals and testimonials. Um, and you have to believe in your worth enough to ask for it and then to follow up on it. Mm-hmm. So there's that confidence piece that comes in. Um, I would say the, the other piece of advice that, that I would give people is you have to pay attention to the business of your business, not just the mission of your business. So it's like the overarching principle behind the specific advice I just gave, um, because we get we can get too caught up in the methodology or too caught up in sort of the, the specifics of the work itself without looking at the business. And I think really stepping back, looking at the big picture, um, making sure that you're thinking as big as you can, Right, finding ways to prompt that big thinking, uh, so that you don't box yourself in uh, with blind spots. Uh, so to, to find ways to help yourself think bigger about the business. Great advice, Karen, and thank you so much for sharing your story today. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. All right. If you want to learn more about Karen uh, and One Team Consulting, you can go to KarenWalker.us. That's the best uh, website for you, Karen. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. And then you can learn about her. You can uh, listen to her, her podcast. You can, I think, get information about her book, No Dumbing Down, as well. Uh, this is Lee Cantor for Stone Payton. We will see you all next time on Coach the Coach Radio. 